the Triathlon Show 308. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Jamie Stanley. Jamie is a sports physiologist with the South Australian Sports Institute. Uh, his PhD was on the topic of heart rate variability, which we will talk about quite a bit in the first half of this episode. But in his role as an applied sports scientist today, he does way more than just heart rate variability. So we will go into a number of questions and topics regarding how to apply sports science in the performance and recovery optimization of endurance athletes that I hope will be really, really interesting for you to hear. And uh, there will be some actionable takeaways as well. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision hydration precision hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat and fueling products that you make it easier for you to hit your numbers very easily due to their 30 grams of carbohydrate per serving principle when it comes to electrolytes and sodium in particular remember that we all have different sweat rates and very different sweat sodium concentrations so personally for example i lose more than 2000 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat and uh, on the bike in a race i sweat around one and a half liters per hour and with my aim being to replace at least 70 percent of that i need to consume at least 4200 milligrams of sodium just on the bike in a 7.3 race for example but somebody who on the other hand might be losing 500 milligrams per liter and sweat way less than i do let's say 0.8 liters per hour they would need to replace a significant amount less than that or specifically eight times less for the same duration out on the course precision hydration's products and free online sweat tests or advanced in-person sweat tests make it easy for you to figure out what you should do when it comes to electrolytes use the promo code that triathlon show 15 to get 15 percent off your first order on precisionhydration.com and thank you to roca Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water or on the bike, then consider getting a Roka wetsuit or trisuit. But uh, for today, let's talk specifically about Roka's performance sunglasses. These are made for advanced performance even in the most extreme conditions. They are all unbelievably lightweight, they have amazing optics and cannot fall off your face thanks to the Geeko anti-slip technology. Personally, I just love the Matador sunglasses, and now there's a newer version available called the Matador Air, which looks super. I haven't tried it yet personally, but it looks yeah, supreme. But there are also a number of other models, so you can consider the different uh, features and functionality that you want in a pair of sunglasses. But rest assured that all of Roka's performance sunglasses have top-of-the-line design and technology. You can get 20% off your entire order by visiting roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Jamie Stanley. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Jamie. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, Michael. Thanks, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure. As we talked about a little bit in the pre-chat, you are uh, kind of recovering from a two-week quarantine after uh, arriving back in Australia from the from Paralympics. Uh, so that's kind of your uh, your current project, I guess. But can you introduce yourself a bit more uh, broadly and or in a bit more detail to to the audience and tell us more about your roles and and your history in endurance sports? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Jamie Stanley. I'm a sports physiologist. 
and I currently work with world record holding Olympic, Paralympic, world and Commonwealth champion athletes, um, primarily across the sports of swimming and cycling, be it um, track and road. Um, I guess I'm employed by the South Australian Sports Institute, which is um, one of the institutes uh, within the Australian High Performance Sporting Network, um, and they allow me to work with the Australian cycling team um, as part of as part of my role there. Mm. And what what is your own? I know that you do a little bit of uh, endurance sport yourself still, and and has a, have a background in that. Well. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I uh, I started off as a as a triathlete myself. Um, I really wanted to 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 go to the Olympics. I wanted to be a, a professional athlete. Um, my genetic my genetics wasn't wasn't quite quite up to that level, but I guess through that it sort of inspired me to find find ways that I could train smarter. Um, to do the best that I could with with the um, the genetics that I had, and and through that I got into sports science, um, got into doing a PhD, which was looking at heart rate variability um, for it, for monitoring training adaptations, and and then worked my way into a job as a sports scientist. So, can you talk a little bit more about your role as a sports scientist? What responsibilities do you have, and and how do you work together with coaches and athletes in in the day-to-day yeah sure uh, i guess my role on a day-to-day basis is quite varied i guess it revolves around engaging with with athletes and and their coaches um, and having discussions around i guess the training uh, the response to the training that the athlete is exhibiting um, and I, and a lot of a lot of planning around how we might um integrate science into practice into the into future training plans um i guess as part of that uh i, I act as a as a bit of a sounding board so every week i'll i'll be having some discussions with the coaches i work with and they they sort of uh explain the training that they've they've got in their mind for the for each particular athlete and we we discuss the the roles and or the the goals and objectives of the training and and try to refine um refine what what they might eventually uh prescribe to the athletes mm. is there something that is a, a recurring theme in the advice that you might be giving coaches and athletes something that you kind of you you see that you with your science background can help contribute with and maybe that that, that is something something that happens frequently uh, and or or is it really across the board with depending on the athlete and their their individual profile uh i guess there's there's two things uh the number one question i ask is is why um and that's and that's not trying to nitpick every single session but i guess you want to understand the the overall objective to a particular session or a, a, a block of training um and and understand uh, the reasons why it's, it's prescribed at that moment and and how the specifics of the, of the session or a series of sessions um, will complement each other to um, to provide that outcome and so I guess it's it's that sort of discussion um, which is not being um, critical but it's it's just through the discussion you might you might um, find things that that need to be refined or we might might find things that are actually really good. Um, and I guess the second thing is around um, 
how the athlete is is responding to training up to that point and and whether they um, are doing too much or, or we need to pull things back and I guess in the in in, in sport in at elite level or amateur level there's 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 generally a bias that more is better and I guess I always like to um, pull it back and say do we are we doing too much and um, what's the minimal effective dose Mm, yeah, and I think we'll get onto onto that uh, topic well right right away. Basically, and, and I had some other follow up questions as well that will relate to these things. For example, uh, yeah, around the, the why question, we could go into testing, and that is something that I'll ask you about a bit later sure. in this interview. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's move on to uh, a specific topic, uh, which is what you did your PhD on, as you mentioned, heart rate variability, and uh, and specifically around. Yeah, monitoring adaptations and, and response to training. Uh, we've done several episodes on the podcast in the past about the basics of what HRV actually is. So, so we can skip ahead a little bit here and I will put some links in the show notes to those, uh, those previous episodes for listeners that want to, to go back to them. But uh, can you tell me uh, how you use or advise use uh, for those athletes and coaches that you work with? Yeah, sure. So I guess my I was first introduced to heart rate variability in 2009. Uh, it, I was looking for a topic that I could uh, do my PhD on and um, one of my supervisors uh, asked me if I was familiar with a guy called Martin Bouchette. And so um, through reading a bit of his work, I, I got really interested in, in this, this tool to potentially monitor how, how you might recover from um, a training stress. And so I guess through through that PhD journey and, and my time working over the last um, 12 or so years, um, I've been really lucky that I've been able to grow my um, my knowledge and my application of HRV as a tool um, to help um, assess how athletes are, are travelling in regards to their, their response to training. Um, so I guess broadly speaking, um, the power in, in heart rate variability, heart rate variability is, is through its longitudinal assessment. So you don't want to just rely on a, a, a daily, a one-off value. Um, its power becomes evident when you've, when you've got months and, and years of, of data to look back on, um, within the context of an athlete's training or other, other factors in their life. Yeah. Uh, can can you give an example of that? Perhaps how how you might look at an athlete. Maybe maybe a, a coach your comes to you with a new athlete that you haven't worked with before, and and they have uh, training data and they have HRV data. What, what what would you what would you do with that when you're getting into it and, and analyzing what they have done? Yep. So I guess yeah, the first thing is to try and look for for patterns in the data over the longer term. So if you have the the training history. You might have the different micro or macro cycles and different um, phases of load and, and you can get a bit more context from the coach as to sort of whether it's a high or, or moderate level uh, load load week or period. Um, and then you look in, uh, in combination with that at the, at the patterns in the heart rate and heart rate variability data over time. Um, and I, I guess it's, it's quite Marco... Um, Altini, who's, who I'm sure you're aware of, has, has done a lot of good uh, blogs explaining um, the different patterns you might see in, in heart rate and heart rate variability, which are, I guess, based off a lot of the work that uh, Martin Bichette and, and Dan Plews um, have done over the years. 
So I guess as a starting point, I would I would be looking at um, whether there's the classic um, indicators of, of a response to to a training load. So you might if you've if you've got a, a two week training block, um, you might look at the the heart rate heart rate variability response at the beginning of that block um, and and assess whether whether they're getting a sympathetic uh, response to the the new stimulus um, as the block. Uh, progresses, you might you might see a bit of a parasympathetic uh, dominance as the athlete begins to cope with that load, and then toward the end of the block, when fatigue starts to set in, you might see a pattern that's reflective of uh, increased sympathetic dominance again. So, I guess it's it's looking for patterns in the data. Yeah, and and what would you so just for listeners there the sympathetic uh, response or a sympathetic dominance they would would indicate or HRV would then be trending down whereas if when the parasympathetic system is getting getting stronger then you would see a, a positive trend in in hrv um, and context is king uh, of course so so what would you be wanting to see in different kinds of training periods when is it okay to see hrv trending down when when would you like to see it trending up or at least being stable what what and what would sort of the long-term or almost like a seasonal level be the the ideal outcome i guess guess for me the the way we um, look at it is is around um red flags and, and starting conversations so um if if the if we've if the coaches planned a, a period of i guess sustained um high workload um uh, you you'll use the heart rate variability data to assess whether um, the athlete is becoming fatigued um, earlier in the block than you might expect or they, they might be coping with that block uh, for the duration of the block in which you might then change your training to extend it out a little bit more. Um, I guess it's, 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 a, it's another tool and toolbox that you can use uh, in combination with obviously um, getting direct feedback from the athlete and subjective measures and, and visually assessing the, um, the athlete as they move in, in whatever ac- activity they're doing. Um, but it can, it can provide that added layer of, um, of context in, in how they're, they're responding or, or adapting to, to the training and life mm. for that matter. Yeah. If we go into a little bit of, uh, the mechanisms here what is the connection between the measuring how strong of a parasympathetic or sympathetic response you have uh, your 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 autonomic nervous system response what is the connection between that and uh, and how you might be doing and performing in training why is the parasympathetic nervous system important anyway yeah so i guess in in really simple terms i guess I would, I would imagine most listeners would be familiar with the um, the fight the, the flight or fight mechanism, which is, I guess, your your sympathetic uh, response. So your body is mobilizing all its resources because um, it's preparing for for a battle or um, or a fight uh, or or to run away from some from something that's trying to um, to eat eat you. Um, and conversely, that the parasympathetic system is is I guess the the opposite to that. It's it's associated with rest and digest or um, or a, a recovery state. So I guess as you go through phases in training, um, your body your body is in a constant state of or dynamic state of, of flux. So you 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 
you either um, are tipping toward a, a sympathetic dominant state where your body is under um, increased stress or more stress than it, it's it's used to, uh, and then you uh, ebb into uh, a more parasympathetic uh, dominant state when your body has become um, accustomed to that level of stress and, it, and is dealing with it well. And so I guess the whole training um, cycle is is your body is tipping from a sympathetic to parasympathetic state um, in response to that. And, and I guess on top of that, uh, other stresses in your life um, will then influence that, uh, which, which I guess is, is where the, the value of, of using heart rate variability as, as another tool um, is in that it provides you that, that extra little bit of assessment to a more holistic, um, a more holistic view on, on how an athlete is going. Yeah, no, that's a good explanation. I think it's I'm fairly evident to to most that you you get stronger, you get fitter by combining adequate stress with adequate recovery. But if you never get to that state where your body is recovering, then how can you expect to get better, and get fitter? Uh, so yeah, that, that's where having yeah, be, being able to to objectively measure that you get enough of that rest and digest response uh, or parasympathetic response is uh, can be can be a good tool in the toolbox as you said and uh, w- w- one uh, clarifying question when you talked about looking at the trends during a training block for example you would be looking i assume at something like a seven day rolling average uh, rather than just the individual day-to-day values of the hrv for sure, for sure. So um, my methodology, I guess it, it is, it's it's based on on the literature that's out there, and um, there are some platforms that that also adopt this sort of methodology. Um, I guess I use a, a sixty day rolling average as I guess the baseline, and um, above and be and below that that value is is I guess your your natural. Um, range of variation that you might expect or sometimes known as the smallest worthwhile change or a fraction of the smallest worthwhile change. Um, and then you're looking at um, this, the changes in, in the seven-day rolling average predominantly and how that relates to that, that typical range that, um, that you, you're in, like the 60-day um, rolling average and whether you're within that or above or below it um, primarily. And then um, the, the daily value, uh, if it's if it's um, substantially um, outside or or above or below the typical values, then then that that is also um, a bit of an indication. But I guess it, it is primarily around what the seven day rolling average is doing re- uh, rel- uh, relative to the sixty day sort of natural very uh, natural range. Yeah, yeah, and uh, let's let's talk about the tools and platforms that you can use. Um, uh, maybe other platforms are using that, but that, when you described that, that sounded very much like HRV for training to me. Is that the platform that you use? Uh, I I I do use it. I, I in in terms of my actual day to day work, I, I've built a spreadsheet and I'm currently building a uh, my my own sort of system i guess as a scientist i like to really know um what the analysis how the analysis works um and there are some subtle subtleties in 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 that hrv for training app versus the way i 
uh, assess things, but I guess the overall concepts are, are very, very aligned. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess right. in terms of, of, of your listeners, um, yeah, what platforms or apps or devices to use, I guess it, it comes down to, I guess, two, two things, um, ensuring that you've got, number one, an accurate measurement, um, and that could be uh, either a, a chest strap, it could be the phone's camera, it could be a ring, um, and then on top of that, it, the ease of use. So, so I guess as we've discussed, the value in, in HIV is is longitudinal assessment and getting um, you know consistent data day to day. So you, you need to find a device that is going to enhance compliance or something that's going to be easy to use. And then finally, it's it's how the data is then processed or analysed and and various apps or platforms do this um, in various ways and some of which is is better than others so um, yeah can, can can we just name platforms that you would that we, you would say uh, that these are good I recommend I approve of them so if the listeners want to check them out then yeah th- these are uh, definitely like good good options can can you name name those that you would think would fall in that category? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Elite HIV, Athlete HIV for Training, they're probably the three sort of most prominent um, HIV platforms out there. Uh, as, as you know, I'm sure your, weird, uh, your listeners are quite aware there's, there's the, the wearable space is, is growing massively at the moment. So there's, there's other devices that, that measure not only heart rate HR and HIV, um, sleep and activity tracking, which which do their own form of assessment, some of which allow that raw data to be pushed into these other platforms. Um, so, again, um, something like an Aura Ring, you can ex- you can push that data from Aura Ring into HRV for training, as an example, if you wanted to use um, that that analysis methodology um, with the Ring as the measurement device. Yeah. Um, and, and that brings me to another interesting question, which is around when and, and how to measure HRV, because the Aura Ring, for example, would measure it continuously. Uh, whereas if you're using, for example, the, the camera on your phone and just pushing that directly while measuring it within your app, whatever platform you're using, then you would, it would typically be something like a one minute morning. Uh, heart rate variability measurement as, as soon as you wake up. So uh, what do you think is the difference between those two methods of, of actually measuring and, and how they then might feed into the algorithms of, uh, of the platforms and then how it's analyzed? Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that? I guess it comes down to being, being really consistent in, in your measurement process. So uh, there's, there's plenty of evidence suggesting that a one-minute morning resting measure is is sufficiently valid and um, provides enough data that um, various filtering can be done that you'll have a clean data set. Um, I guess the the limitations with doing a, a, a waking um, resting morning sample is that as soon as you've, you've woken up, you're exposed to various uh, stimulus, um, be it um, noise outside, very light birds, um, your partner. Uh, if you've got a stressful day coming up at work and you're just already in that mindset, I guess all of these factors 
um, will then influence your 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 rest your your state when you when you're doing that one minute measurement. And I guess part of that is 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 the whole point is that you're trying to capture your your state at on in that particular moment. Um, so I guess there's there's plenty of evidence that 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 methodology is sound and is is reliable and provides um, uh, solid a solid basis for interpretation over over longitudinal over a longitudinal data set. Um, and I, and I, for one, I, I, I operated that way for, for five or six years before that I was using a, the old school chest strap. I'd have that by the side of my bed and would put that on. It was used to be five minutes before, um, back in the day. Um, but, but now I guess for the convenience and, and for another reason, um, I use a device that measures it over, overnight when, when you're not, when you're not awake and, and you're not, as prone to various stimulus that that's that's going on that could distract you, and I guess um, having the the data for the entire night um, is is quite sound statistically in that um, you've got a larger sample to then use. So you, you do notice that if you if you have done uh, a one minute morning sample for for a year and then you move to a, an over uh, an overnight sample, the values will be slightly different. Um, but again, it's around building up that that longitudinal uh, history in the data when you're assessing. Yeah, yeah. Once you get to that sixty days of having uh, yeah, you established your baseline confident. again, then then you should be fine. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, what role would you say that resting heart rate measurements, morning resting heart rate, play into this? Is is that an important complement, or is it less sensitive to uh, to I guess? Uh, perturbations in your uh, state of um, of uh, the sympathetic and parasympathetic balance or yeah how, how do you use resting heart rate uh, so I guess there's, there's two there's two points there in in terms of um, the analysis of the trends um, having uh, what heart rate's doing in combination with heart rate variability is is very important in, in deciding um, what physiological state you're in at that and in that moment um but marco's actually just done a, a blog recently which which goes into this topic um and i guess changes in in resting heart rate are probably less susceptible to a, acute or smaller stresses um but they they show up larger stresses so if you're coming down with a sickness for example um you might expect to see like you know, a morning resting heart rate five to ten beats above what you what you normally see, um, whereas more subtle changes or, or stresses that that might be accumulating over time with training might not be as uh, are more evident um, with with changes in in HRV. Yeah, yeah. Mark Altini, by the way, yeah, he, he I know him very well. He has been on the podcast twice before, so I'll put yeah. uh, the links to those episodes in the show notes. Um, and uh, and what's your view on sleep tracking uh, devices for tracking your sleep, wearables, or even there are mattresses and uh, and things of that nature as well? So, do, do you think that those are a valuable addition to this sort of data set that you're collecting? Uh, definitely, if you think about it, um, sleep is the the most potent uh, tool for recovery. So, if you can if you can measure it, then I, as a scientist, um, I think that's a, that's a positive. I guess 
with the multitude of devices becoming available, uh, if you if you were to start using one, I guess it's important to understand what and how they measure and and their accuracy, um, because I guess. If you're trying to make a decision, you don't want to make a decision of poor data because then the decision inevitably will be poor. So, um, yeah, I'm very interested in this space uh, in, in and the relationship between your sleep duration, your sleep quality, um, and how that uh, relates to your adaptive state and the training Um yeah, I think I think as a scientist uh, working in this space, it's 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 definitely an area that's that's well, it's it's already exploding, but it's it's just it's just uh, at the tipping point now. Yeah, um, sleep duration is pretty obvious. <laughs> that, that would be one yeah. one, if not the biggest one, to measure. But you mentioned sleep quality there. Um, what is the kind of state of evidence regarding how to actually quantify sleep? Uh, sleep quality uh, is is that something that is well established and that trackers can now do fairly accurately and, and reliably, or well, what's your take on that? Uh, I guess sleep sleep quality is is the the aspect which the 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 trackers that you can buy off the shelf probably aren't quite at a level of accuracy um, to determine. So if you if you go into a sleep lab or a sleep clinic and you do a a, a full a sleep assessment. It, it takes it takes a, an experienced um, sleep technician a few hours to assess um, your your brain waves to assess where what phase of sleep you're in. So I guess in terms of sleep quality or or it's it's more about the sleep duration. I guess um, in terms of the the products that are readily available to consumers now and the accuracy of determining whether you're asleep or awake. Is is probably where where devices are at, at at this point in time, and that in itself is quite useful in in terms yeah. of yeah understanding when you when you're sleeping, your patterns um, in that and, and the duration. What about if somebody just um, like by with with their own uh, well with, with their watch and and their subjective rating of their sleep quality would collect all of that data? Would that be much inferior to using uh, devices, or uh, would would that be a fairly good way of of doing things to to have that data and be able to correlate it with uh, with performance and with artery variability and and so on? Uh, or or is there a risk there of perhaps bias in terms of uh, sleep duration and and wake up time that you're not aware of necessarily and so on. Uh, I guess there's always risk of, of bias with any subjective measure. Uh, I know having discussions with uh, sports psychologists, they're they're very particular on um, the question and how you frame a question and a scale because that that can heavily influence the response. Um, and you might not the response you get might not be a true indication of the question you were trying to ask. So um, I guess in, in my in my view, like being aware of that, uh, I still I still think that there's value in in subjective data, uh, particularly if you uh, have a, a good longitudinal history of it, because it, it's it's not necessarily about. Uh, changes on a particular day it's around looking at the patterns over time the same way you would look at um, heart rate or heart rate variability data mm, yep that makes sense 
so to summarize this discussion so far with heart rate variability and resting heart rate, sleep, uh, can can you give a couple of key practical takeaways for for the listeners around this? What, what would you advise? Uh, what would your advice be around around these topics? I guess just be. I think it's a very useful. They're very useful tools, and and the availability and the the ease of use of, of devices and products out there now is is I oh, it's I wish I had this ten years ago. Um, I guess you just you just need to be aware of or have a bit of an understanding on the potential limitations of each each device, um, just so you know that the data that you're looking at is is somewhat to a level of accuracy that you're you're comfortable with, uh, particularly if it's going to be used to make uh, important decisions on on your training. Um, so I guess in in summary, like the the heart rate variability and the sleep tracking, they they're useful tools um, to better inform on your physiological state and your response to training. But not only that, I guess it's as as particular amateur athletes, it's it's not only your training that you need to be aware of how your body is responding. It's it's the the life stresses. It's it's um, is work taking it taking a toll. Um, yeah, is, are your relationships um, stressful? I guess it's that whole holistic sort of uh, space which um, tracking these things can be useful. Yeah, perfect. And uh, let's now move on to some uh, different physiology questions uh, that I have for you. So um, let's let's start with what I alluded to earlier when we talked about your, your current role and how you're helping athletes and coaches. And uh, we talked about there the why being important, and uh, around that, well, one of the things that uh, I assume that in some cases you would deem uh, a good thing to do would be to do some sort of testing to assess what the athlete actually needs. Uh, so, what's your view on and recommendations regarding testing, whether we're talking laboratory and/or field testing? Yeah, um, I guess that's it's perfect. Like you, you need to have some sort of feedback mechanism to to understand. Um, how the training is affecting an athlete, but I guess again, yeah, as it comes down to the same questions, is to is to be very clear on the purpose of it of a test, um, what the goal is, what the rationale is, um, and to know the limitations of of the tests or the protocols. So I guess this can be applied to both uh, lab based testing and field based testing. Um, but having an understanding of those things is is very is fundamental um, before undertaking. Uh, a test, so I guess uh, not everyone can can have access to to lab tests whenever they like. But if if you're an amateur athlete, lab tests can provide a level of information on particular aspects of physiology that you just can't get with field testing. Um, so, as an example, if you want to understand your fuel utilization um, to understand. Um, yeah, what your fueling strategy might be for an Ironman or, or an Olympic distance triathlon, um, then doing a lab test um, with full gas analysis um, will give you an insight into into that. Um, whereas if you if you're looking at assessing how well you're tracking in terms of your training, um, yeah, doing some field based testing. So in swimming, it's very common to have a, a standardized uh, set main set that you might do. Um, every month or every six weeks, just to assess how you how you're improving, um, and likewise on the bike, you can you've got power meters where you can 
you can you can easily track um, your mean maximal powers for various durations um, every session. So I guess there's there's that balance in 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 being clear on what you are trying to identify and the method by which you um, you want to examine that. Yeah, if, if we're talking about uh, let's say let's say let's say an elite triathlete on the on the Olympic pathway. Uh, what what would kind of be your and again let's let's take a scenario where you are just starting working with them and and they haven't done any any testing other than maybe some field based testing before what what will you ha- what do you have them do so when when you first start working with an athlete i guess it's it's very important to try and characterize their physiology uh, you want to have an understanding as to what their strengths and weaknesses are and how that that relates to the event demands um, when it comes to competition performance. So I guess early on you, you either, if you have access to their, their training history or as much training history as possible, then you can, you can look at, um, I guess on the bike as an example, you can look at, um, their power duration curve, um, and have a, have an assessment as to how that has progressed over time, um, to various kinds of training. Um, but then on top of that, you might, you might want to understand a bit more deeply um, what their aerobic capacity is, uh, and so you might do a lab test. Or if you want to understand how economical they are running, um, you would do a lab test. So I guess yeah, it, it's about understanding the physiology of of the athlete so that you can then work with the coach on um, on the right sort of uh, training. Yeah. And do you think if for amateurs that are living somewhere where they do have access to a lab, is it, uh, is it equally beneficial for them to, uh, to learn about their physiology as assuming that they can also get some sort of good, uh, good guidance around how to actually use that information? Uh, or is it less so when, when you're, when you're not an elite athlete competing to go to the Olympics, for example? I guess it's, it depends. <laughs> um, if you're an athlete that is, it is really interested in, in understanding your body and you've got a coach who is also, um, knows how to use the information, then I think there's always value in, in trying to understand at a higher level, um, how your body responds or, or what your body's capacities are. Um, if on the other hand, you, um, you don't have, um, I guess the desire or the the ability to utilize that higher level information, then it maybe it's it's not it, not worth the investment. But I guess from my point of view, I like to I like to understand um, as high level as possible um, what's going on in, in in your body. Yeah, yeah, that make, makes sense. And uh, and final question around testing when it comes to training prescription and how that might be or might not be based uh on testing done in the lab for example what, what's your take on that are, are you somebody who likes to have an athlete in the lab and then you would give them training zones based on that testing or or is it more about understanding their physiology and maybe give some that gives you some general idea of what kind of training they might need to be doing but in terms of actual training prescription you don't necessarily need to base that off of a test in a lab. Uh, how how do you view that? Yeah, it's 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 a bit of both. It's probably more toward the latter. So uh, the lab test can give you some really um, specialist information, um, a greater understanding. Uh, in some cases, uh, you can use that data to then um, uh, 
inform on training zones, but um, I, I wouldn't look at, at lab test data in isolation. Even if um, I was doing a lab test every month, I would I would still use the training data um, to, I guess, reference the lab test data off of. So, uh, yeah, I guess a lab test is not 100% vital in terms of setting uh, training zones. I guess now with the 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 multitude of devices that you can use to to track power or speed um you can you can kind of get that information um from field-based data yeah and uh moving on to another topic training load how how do you uh monitor training load and uh, is that different in the different sports uh, like swimming cycling and running yeah, I guess training load is is definitely a topic of discussion in the in the literature um, at the moment. I guess most triathletes will be very familiar with the um, the TSS or the training stress score, um, acute training load, um, TSB, and chronic training load or CTL. Um, and I guess they they're useful metrics uh, as they they provide a reference point, but I. But if you if you really want to quantify and understand um, the training, then you so you need to to be thinking a little bit deeper, I guess, in terms of you know it can be as simple as volume or distance, but then you might want to be considering um, but with running like how many how many steps are you taking and and what is the intensity um, of each step because I guess. Running being a, a load-bearing sport, um, every step is going to be a few g-forces um, of of load that's going through your body. Um, there's also the aspects of intensity or speed, or as I alluded to, intent. If you're doing um, gym-based work, um, all of these all of these factors influence the um, the load on the on the body. So, um, I guess having an awareness that that a uh, hundred TSS, for example, um, may not may not deliver, or your body may not respond identically to a hundred TSS workout, depending on how that workout is structured. Yeah. So, so what do you have any uh, any recommendations from the applied side of things? Like, how how do you? Uh, work with training load with with athletes and coaches that you're involved with yeah yeah so i guess really basically it's 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 quantifying what what the training is that that has been planned and completed so uh, very basic stuff so just starting with volumes distance or or durations and breaking that down into uh i guess well-defined training zones so you've got your your heart rate training zones which are, are very robust um, so they, there's three zone models, there's five zone models. Uh, in Australia, we use a five zone model typically. Um, and, and same with power and, and speed. So quantifying time in zones at, at a more whole, um, macro level. And there's, I guess you can, you can look at various, um, research papers which describe this in, in cross country skiers or, or other endurance athletes and, and I guess the distribution distribution of of the training intensity um is it a, a polarized training intensity or is it a pyramidal um they're the the broader sort of ways i would 
characterize or, or monitor the training and then then you might go into some more uh, specific characteristics um, depending on the kinds of of work that you're doing so um, if you're doing some sprint training you might be characterizing the duration of above um your critical power or your or the percentage of your anaerobic power reserve that that you're accumulating for for those particular workouts yeah yeah that uh, that's interesting to to look at um almost i mean yeah you you're measuring the volume or the distance so so that is a load measure but then you you went there already to look at time in zone which is uh I, yeah, as, as you as you described, the characterization of the training more so than than the training load itself. So, uh, so it's a very interesting, uh, yeah, in, interesting way of doing it, and um, and I think it it makes makes a lot of sense. And then, of course, as we talked about previously with HRV, that is the response to the the type of training that you're you're doing. So, so while there may not be a very sophisticated actual training load, quant- quantifiable training load in there you're kind of getting all of those pieces pieces around it and, and can can uh, can adjust things according to uh, according to that response to the load and based on 100%, 100%. you're doing exactly and that's i guess yeah that that response element is is the key there because you can you can have the the greatest um thorough planned out training in the world that um, but if the response is is not is not appropriate, then um, you never you're not going to get a good outcome. So it's it's balancing or having a good understanding of of what the training and and the elements of the training that is being undertaken, and also understanding the response to that. Um, and I guess various load markers provide reference points that you can go back on um, historically to to assess how you're tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I think you said something that that is absolutely true. There, with 100 TSS, uh, is not necessarily the same as 100 TSS uh, collected in a different type of workout, and and that's true for whether it's two cycling workouts, for example. But but I think especially so for triathletes, if you're comparing a 100 TSS bike workout with a 100 TSS swim workout with a 100 TSS run workout, they are very very different, uh, or potentially very very different in in what the actual uh strain on the body is and the response to that uh to to that load will be so so i think the tss model might be a little bit uh, might might be quite uh quite a lot better in in single sport disciplines especially in in cycling with accurate power measurements but i think in triathlon it's it's yeah it's it's not there's a lot of caveats to it i'm not saying that it's not not relevant but but it's um i think it's it's tricky to use it there for sure. And as long as uh, you've hit the nail on the head there, as long as you're aware of the limitations, it, it is a, a good reference point um, and something that you can um, you can track over time um, to assess your progression. Yeah. Um, the next question that I have is around prescribing uh, and prescri- prescribing workouts and executing workouts. Uh, do you have uh, uh, any thoughts there around uh whether you like to prescribe workouts based on on uh, on outputs like pace or power or internal uh, measures of uh, of strain like heart rate or RPE, what, what's your philosophy around that? Uh, I like to use all of them, um, and I use them at uh, uh, at different phases in the training, um, so that one the athletes don't get reliant on a particular piece of data. 
Um, and it also means that they it forces them to be more aware of, of how their body is is responding or executing um, a session. So, so as an example, early in early in um, after an off season, uh, an athlete's pretty fresh. Uh, you typically you'll see um, really high heart rates for a, a particular um, power or, or, or pace, and and so. If you, I like to prescribe a little bit more off of the internal load at that point in time because you know that the power or the speed is probably going to be down for that elevated heart rate. And so mentally, the athlete is thinking, yeah, well, I'm getting a good workout and they're not fixated on, oh, no, my power is like 30% lower than what it was at the at the end of the season. Um, so I guess I like, I like to use various means of prescription at various time points in this in the season um because i i believe that you know if 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 in an ironman your power meter stops working you you, you still need to have a, a means to to know how to regulate your pacing and so being familiar with with a whole range of feedback mechanisms and prescription methodologies is is quite useful yeah uh, that's a great answer and uh, well, one if, if you can give an example of uh, RPE specifically, I assume that RPE would be part of uh, almost almost every workout you prescribe, but are there any workouts or types of workouts or phases of the season where you might actually only use RPE as the only metric uh, for, for the athlete uh, to, or as the only primary metric anyway to, to follow in their workouts? Do you have yeah, any examples I- of that? Yeah, for sure. So athletes who, who might be doing some cross training, so doing doing um, some modalities of exercise which they're not typically accustomed. So, so as an example, you might have some some swimmers who um, are doing some some running or some um, bike based training. They they don't have any concept of 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 running pace or or power or cadence. Um, and so, using RPE to prescribe in that situation is is quite useful. Because mm-hmm. I guess swimmers swimmers know what what an RPE is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and and it's yeah, it's it's all. <laughs> no, no, I yeah. was gonna gonna get in, get into some myths here about swimmers. I'm not gonna do that. Um, <laughs> let's 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 instead move on to. Uh, can you talk about uh, physiology uh, f- physiological limiters that endurance athletes might have? Like, I mean, of course there are a number of them, but maybe you can just touch upon the the most common ones and how you might figure out which one might be the most limiting for for you personally so that might lead back to the testing discussion we had earlier potentially yeah sure so i guess uh really simplistically i would ask an athlete what their favorite kinds of workouts are and what their least favorite kinds of workouts are um because typically um athletes will gravitate to the kind of workouts that they enjoy which are the ones that they're probably better at or good at and they'll they'll avoid the ones that that they're not so good at or that hurt more or they just dislike um so i guess at a very very basic level that that is is um a question that i that i ask ask athletes um at the at the beginning, when I'm trying to get a get a feel for for their characteristics, is is to work out what what things they they like doing and what things they don't like doing, um, and then based off of that, then you can you can work work toward what might um, be limitations for them depending on on their event. 
Um, and so I guess when, when it comes to training for an event and, and I guess understanding the limitations of that athlete in a particular event, you, you sort of you need to, one, understand what the performance requirements are for the particular event and then understand um, what the athlete's characteristics are and, and what their current level of performance is relative to that event. And then you can work out whether um, you need to train um, their weakness a little bit more or whether you you go after training their strengths. And I guess it, it comes back to, to balancing um whether you, whether you train more the strengths or more the weakness at, at particular times. And do you have a view on that? When, by the way, I, I love that answer with uh, asking about the, the workouts they like and dislike. That's really smart. Uh, with regard to training strengths or weaknesses, do you, do you have a general a view on, on when to do which one? Yeah, so I guess you have to, I guess it depends a bit on, on the, the time you have in preparation for the goal event. Um, and also the understanding of, of those performance requirements for the event. So if an athlete, um, if their weakness is, is a key part of that performance requirement, then you don't have a choice. You have to address that weakness. Um, you have to bias toward that, that weakness. And typically, if you've got a, a longer preparation, you would, you would address the weaknesses earlier on so that you've got a little bit more, little bit more time to spend um, addressing those weaknesses. And then as, as you get closer to competition and you start to train a bit more of, of the athlete's strengths, then their confidence is, confidence is going to come up as well. So I guess, yeah, typically I would, I would be leaning toward training or trying to address weaknesses as early as possible in, in a preparation for a, a, a milestone or benchmark event. Um but yeah, sometimes you just you don't have a choice, and you and you need to you need to address them um, at any point in time in a preparation. Yeah, no, that makes makes a lot of sense. And uh, you mentioned there early on in this interview around quite often the more is more attitude uh, being something that um, yeah you try to at, at least generate a discussion around and then finding what the the right amount of training is so can we discuss volume and also intensity and uh, the balance between the two and and how you how do you view those in a bit more detail yeah that's it's a very it's a very tricky question i don't think there is a right answer here um i guess it, it how much volume and how much intensity you do and when and when you do it it, it comes down to um understanding the event demands of of whatever the competition is that you're training for and and how that and how your characteristics relate to that uh so so if you're if you're training for an ironman for example then yeah volume is going to be very very important because you have to survive survive the day uh whereas um when you're when you're coming down to you know olympic distance or sprint distance uh, triathlons then, then you need to use um, more of the energy systems, um, and so uh, yeah, you you do need to do a little bit more intensity. So I guess how do you how do you determine what is enough is is very tricky, and and I guess you have to be guided a little bit by the athlete's history and and also how they're they're again responding to the training that's that's being uh, prescribed. 
Yeah. Just as a personal anecdote, when you were uh, doing, when you were training for triathlons at an elite level, how how much would you train? And and in hindsight, was that uh, how would you have done it any differently than than you ended up than you did? Uh, I wish I had more time. But again, I'm one of those people that I, I didn't like swimming, and it was my weakness. So that's that's I guess where that that whole anecdote comes from is. If I really wanted to be good at triathlon, I, I probably should have invested more time becoming a better swimmer, um, and and that would have flo- uh, had flow-on effects to to the bike and the run positioning. Um, but again, I think the I was I, I guess my biggest weeks may have been twenty twenty five hour weeks of training, um, which you know isn't that much um, relatively speaking to other athletes, but I think that was the limit of what my body could take at the time, um, because yeah, if, if I I knew that if I if I went above that, I would the quality of of key sessions would suffer or I'd break down. Um, and so again, that's that's often a trap. You sort of your ego in, in uh, gets in the way. You just want to do more and more, but um, you have to really um, really understand what the goal of each session is, and if you're not you're not in a, a physical state that you can execute um, execute the as the session is, is prescribed. Uh, then you're probably doing too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really dangerous when to to look at what other athletes are doing because they're they're not the same person as you. They don't have the same program as you. The context is is different. So yeah, just trying to do more because somebody else is doing it is uh, definitely not the the right way to go um so uh, then the final sort of uh physiology question here that i want to ask you is uh, around uh, continuous blood glucose monitoring and uh so we see that there are a couple of devices out there for for that now including for example super sapiens uh, can you explain well can you can you give give us your opinion on whether it is useful or not for endurance athletes and and if you think it is then um, what is the how would you use it do you have any specific recommendations on that yeah sure so i'll, I'll be upfront here i haven't personally um used any of these devices i've definitely seen seen some um some posts and some and some data out there on them um and I guess my my first question, as someone who hasn't hasn't used them yet, is is what information will it provide, and how how would it be used, uh, and also more importantly, uh, is are these devices actually accurate? Um, because as we alluded to earlier on, if 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 you've got a device that isn't accurate, then you sort of you're wasting your time trying to make any sort of sense out of the data anyway. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd I have seen one paper uh, come out recently, which which suggested, which probably biases me toward um, someone who's not overly interested in 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 using these devices more. Is that um, currently the accuracy seems to decline when you consume carbohydrate, so or after you've consumed carbohydrate. So it's at the moment that to me suggests that they're not at a, a at a at a level where the information is going to be useful so um yeah i haven't i haven't invested more time um in in them at this stage yeah 
Yeah. Well, that is interesting to know. I, I haven't seen that paper, uh, but in, interesting to hear. And uh, yeah, I'd be interested in, in reading that uh, myself. Um, and, but um, yeah, I'm sure more, more papers and more, or more research is going to, to come out around them. And uh, probably, I, I think that the hype is really high right, right now. And, and maybe we will see a traditional sort of hype curve <laughs> development of these devices where eventually they will end up somewhere uh, in, where there are some interesting use cases, but, uh, but it's probably not going to be uh, a revolutionary thing. But I, I don't, I definitely don't see that being, uh, being for, the way that sure. things are going. For sure. And I'm definitely by no means discounting the importance of um, understanding or, or fueling adequately during training or competition. Like that's, that's a, that's a massive thing um, in my mind in terms of why endurance athletes may not succeed is, is they don't get their nutrition um, or their fueling right uh, during training and also in competition. So definitely not discounting that having that, that aspect of, of, um, of monitoring. Yeah. Uh, so I have a few general questions to end with. And uh, the first one is, uh, what would be your top three tips for uh, amateur triathletes or endurance athletes that want to improve their performance? This can be any any tips that you want to give here. Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess number one is consistency is key. So what it, it, you just need to be as consistent as possible in your training. So don't don't be tricked or or sucked into doing massive blocks or doing these one-off big sessions just because it it feels good at the time um ultimately it's it's around accumulation of of training over time is is how you're going to achieve results without breaking down so number one um be as consistent as possible and if your training program is not allowing that then you probably need to have a look at it uh number two um, in the amateur world of triathlon, um, triathlon is only one component of your life. Uh, you often have you got work and family and other obligations which are stresses on on your body. So, if you if you are chasing a particular event, then you need to get your life stresses under control for a, for a period of time. So that's not to say that you need to just become a monk and just only focus on on your training objective. Um, you can't you can't sustain that. But if there is a if there is one event that you're really serious about, try and, and reduce as much of your other life stresses as possible during that preparation. And then finally, I guess the most in, the most important thing in sustainability is to make sure you're having fun. Um, because if if you're not having fun, there's not really much point doing it. Yeah. No, great, great advice, all of that. And uh, next, what would you tell yourself from ten years ago if you could? I guess as a as an endurance athlete, I wish I'd I'd learnt and been exposed more to strength and power physiology. Um, like now, I, I guess a lot of the, work, the sports I work with are, are power power endurance sports. They go for you know four minutes or less. So I've, I've got a, a greater appreciation of how strength training um, and being able to produce power or have have high high speed characteristics. Um, early on in your development can definitely um, be of benefit to um, endurance events. Mm, interesting. How, how would you have potentially applied that to yourself as an endurance athlete? I guess I would have, instead of going out and doing like four or five hour long rides or just really enjoying like long, slow runs, uh, I probably would have tried to do a, a bit more structured um, strength training 
uh, and and that doesn't necessarily mean in the gym. Um, I think there is a, a role for um, coordination and movement patterns using traditional uh, lifting exercises, but uh, more talking about um, out sports specific stuff. So like doing doing hill running or doing um, yeah doing doing hill efforts on the bike. Um, yeah, that kind of Great. stuff. Yep. And uh, what's one thing within endurance sports, physiology or science that you are currently uh, learning about or are fascinated by and why? Yeah, I guess, again, as we've alluded to in, in elite sport, there's athletes are already training a lot. And, and in many cases, you can't really add any more training to, to the program. So for me, it's around um, trying, trying to find ways to get more out of training or even doing less training and getting the same value out of it. And, and that's where uh, I've been interested in exploiting environmental stresses such as heat or hypoxia, mainly mainly heat, um, to potentially enhance the adaptations you might get from a particular training session or, um, yeah, or, or, or phasing, phasing training more smartly using, using those, those additional stresses. And just quickly on that, is that something that you would use uh, even if an athlete, for, just for the general development of the athlete, not not uh, not only if they're preparing for actually racing or performing in the heat? Oh, def- most definitely. So I've, I've actually going to a graduation of my PhD student tomorrow, uh, whose PhD was the application of heat heat stress in, in elite athletes. And um, I guess... We did have a focus on on Tokyo being hot, but I guess the interesting part of this of the whole PhD was is how we can use the stress of of heat, um, and how how we could phase that into into normal training blocks to to get um, added benefit. Mm. And uh, can we give a shout out to your PhD student so people can look up their their work? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Sam Tebeck is his name. Uh, he hasn't none of his. He's got one paper out at the moment from his honors um but yeah we're hope, hoping to get that published or out there for peer review in in the next month or two right right and uh, now let's uh, uh just finish up with the rapid fire question so these are uh, one sentence answers and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to sports or science or physiology i can't go past the science and application of high intensity interval training by uh larson and bichette yeah yeah the, paul has been on the podcast uh, three times before and that's <laughs> actually it's from that work that i that i first got to know you actually oh, awesome and uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically professionally or personally i guess i i've got a bit of a motto around actions speak louder than words and so i guess you could apply that in any scenario but um yeah generally i like to I like to do something rather than tell someone to do something because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to encourage people to, to do things or, or, or trust you if, if you're not actually willing to do them, do it yourself. Yeah. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Uh, I guess my dad, he was an elite marathon runner. He was also a scientist and a world leader in his particular field. So I guess, Seeing him and seeing what he was able to achieve sort of gave me the the belief that you know if I put my mind to it, um, I could I could do similar. 
All right, perfect. And uh, finally, where, where can people follow you and your work, uh, social media, uh, website potentially? Where, what is the best place? Uh, so social media, like on Twitter, uh, at jamiestanley85. Uh, I do have a research gate and a LinkedIn, um, which I'm, I'm sure you, you'll be able to find if, if you just search Jamie Stanley. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Uh, perfect. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. It's been great to chat to you and uh, hope that you uh, have uh, some nice downtime now after the Paralympics and get to get to recover and, and then on to some new and interesting projects. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Michael. It's, uh, it's been great to chat with you and, um, and to revisit some memories from triathlon. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we will have a number of links to Jamie's profiles, Twitter, ResearchGate, and LinkedIn, but also to his thesis, which is called Heart Rate Variability as a Tool to Monitor Cardiac Parasympathetic Function During Short and Long-Term Recovery from Exercise. And finally, we will have a number of past episodes of that triathlon show linked that are related to what we talked about including interviews with, for example, Marco Altini on heart rate variability and some other heart rate variability episodes as well. And the interviews that I did with Paul Larson, known from Hit Science that Jamie talked about, which are all on the science and application of interval training. If you are interested in training better, becoming fitter, performing better in your races, then consider getting a coach or a training plan. You can look up the services and products that we have to offer on scientifictriathlon.com and you can email me michael at scientifictriathlon.com if you're interested. I'm happy to help figure out what the best solution might be for you. But no matter what your level is or what your goals are, I think we have uh, something that would be of benefit for you. So don't hesitate to email me to find out more if you want that or just a browse on scientifictriathlon.com. On next Monday's episode, we will have a Kona preparation special. And as you can probably guess, this one was prepared before the news broke, uh, way before the news broke about uh, Kona not being able to go ahead in February and uh, then subsequently being moved to a championship in St. George instead. So uh, it is a while until the next Kona, admittedly, but uh, I did introduce with several top-level coaches, just like we did uh, a couple of weeks ago for the workout fueling episode. So this is another one in a similar vein and uh, i hope that you will enjoy that will enjoy that so so i'm going to put it out there already and uh, it will be evergreen content so the next time the world championships are in kona again you can go back and listen to it and uh, get some really really useful tips and strategies for preparing for a great performance in kona when that eventually happens Big thanks to our sponsor, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your first order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.